All right, I hope you have some notes. I'm going to talk about something a little bit different than what we've talked about the the first 10 weeks. And I hope you have a Bible because we're going to look up some passages in a little while. Some of you have been here, I think, every week that we've done the, the study on Wednesday nights, this study. Some of you have been here, uh, you've served down in Awana and you've come down here off weeks and some of you have maybe just popped in tonight. I want to just remind you of what we've talked about so far and in, in what we're trying to do in this series. Calling it the truth, the subtitle or, or underneath the main title, we're talking about things that we need to know, believe, share, and defend. When we say these are things that you need to know, we're talking about your mind, These are things that you need to understand. You need to have an intellectual comprehension of this stuff. When we talk about things that you believe, we're talking about your heart. Things that move from sort of a head knowledge understanding to an acceptance and to a central place in your life. When we talk about sharing, we're talking about opening your mouth. This is not just stuff that stays in your head and in your heart, but at some point with somebody, it's got to spill out and it's got to to, to be given to somebody else verbally. You have to open your mouth and share the good news with somebody. And then lastly, defend. That's kind of putting all of these things together. When you know it and you believe it, you're passionate about it and you're ready to talk about it. Hopefully when people have questions or or arguments or other views, you can defend what you believe and understand it. And so that's kind of our goal. And so the first two or three weeks were very basic And we just answered some very simple questions. Questions like, what is the gospel? What is is the gospel? If you're going to share the gospel with somebody, what is it? It's a message that God is holy. It's a message that we're sinful. It's a message that Jesus is the answer to our sin problem before the holy God. That he calls us to repent and to believe and to follow him. Very, very simple. Any fifth grader down in Awana can memorize that and learn to share it in 15 minutes. That's the gospel message. We talked about what does real conversion look like. When that becomes part of you, when it's really internalized, you have it conceptually and you believe it in your heart and you're living it out, what does that look like? And so we talked about conversion and what that looks like. Just some very basic things. And then we spent a few weeks talking about practical things. If you've missed any of these, you can go back. They're posted online. We have the notes up here. But we talked about some practical things. We talked about how do you share your testimony? A lot of times we say anybody can share your testimony. You just talk about what God's done for you. Anybody can share their testimony, but if you're not trained and prepared to do it, you're probably going to do it poorly. And so we talked about what do you need to say? What do you not need to say? How do you need to say it? How do you share your testimony? We talked about how do you use the Bible when you share the gospel with somebody else? And maybe I told you one of the most important talks in this series. One night we spent the whole evening saying, How do you ask questions of people when you're sharing the gospel with them? A lot of the time we say, I need to learn what to say, but sometimes we need to learn what to ask, and then we need to close our mouth and listen to somebody before we ever get ready to talk at them. We need to be willing to talk with them. So those are some practical things we talked about. Then we moved and we started talking about worldview, right? We spent the last several weeks before... Thanksgiving break talking about worldview and all the different parts that go into a worldview and what is our worldview and what are worldviews of some of the other kinds of people, not, you know, Buddhists and the Hindus and the Muslims that predominantly live on the other side of the world, but the worldview of the people that we rub shoulders with every single day. 
What are the things that they believe and how do we need to be prepared to talk to them? So here's what we're going to do on the last two weeks. They're going to be a little bit different. We're going to change directions one more time. We're going to try to treat these last two weeks like we are missionaries. Okay, this is what I mean. If you as a member of our church decided you wanted to be a missionary and you said, I want to go to India, okay, I want to be a missionary to India, and we said, great, they need missionaries, we'd love to send you, we're excited about this, we're sending you as a missionary to India, here we go. We would not expect you to get a plane ticket, pack your stuff up, fly over, get off the plane, and immediately just start telling everybody you see about Jesus. If you did that, you'd be the worst missionary ever. You really would. Before you go, as you're going, when you get there, before you start trying to talk to anybody, first thing you're going to have to do is what? Learn their language. You have to do that. You have to learn to speak with them and communicate with them. And you have to understand what it is that they believe. Specifically, if we sent you to India and you get off the plane, let's say you master the language, but you don't give any attention to what do the people believe. You start walking around and you say, listen, God is holy, and you're a sinner, and Jesus is the answer, and if you repent and believe, you can be born again. Say that in the United States? Great. Fantastic. You say that in India? Tell people they can be born again? You know what they're going to say? No thanks. Been born again thousands of times. Reincarnation. I'm actually trying to not be born again. Trying to get to the end of that. I don't want to be born again. You're trying to share the gospel, but you're not sharing it in a way that really communicates with them. Okay? You have to be a missionary, not just in India, but right here where we live. Before you go out and I go out and we just start preaching to people and just bashing people with the gospel and the Bible verses and all the things we learn you got to have some understanding of who they are and where they're coming from and what it is that they believe and the things that you need to address with them. And I hope that as we talk about this issue tonight, we just titled this lesson Moral Therapeutic Deism. And then the lesson next week, we're going to talk about fake Jesuses. There's a lot of them. I hope it equips you when you leave this place to have some understanding of what you might encounter when you go and you try to share the truth with somebody. So we're kind of trying to think like missionaries. So tonight, we're going to look at Scripture, but just to be real honest, a lot of what we talk about comes from this book. It's written by a guy named Christian Smith. He's a sociologist, a researcher at the University of North Carolina. He's done some amazing, amazing research, and this is sort of like one of his his most famous projects and he wrote this big book and put all his findings in here and it's fascinating stuff. He interviewed in the National Study of Youth and Religion, he interviewed 3,370 teenagers. I don't know if that sounds like a big number to you or not, but to actually conduct interviews with real people, that's an incredible number of people. It's a huge sample size. A lot of the polls and statistics you see on TV have a way smaller sample size than that. So over 3,000 teenagers. You might want to think about this. Put the, put the dots together here. He did this research in 2002 and 2003. Okay, It's a little bit old. 2002, 2003. And he only interviewed teenagers age 13 to 17. Okay, 
2002, 2003, teenagers who are 13 to 17. That means today, these are the young families in Odessa that we want to reach, right? 25 to 30-ish, young folks who live in our town, and every church in town says, we want to reach young people. I had the chance this week to talk to a guy who's kind of a, a church consultant, and he came and he visited with me about some things, and he said, uh, he said everywhere I go, I've never been to a church that said they did not want to reach young people. Every church wants to reach young people. And we say, we want to reach young people. We want to reach these young families. Well, these young families are the very same teenagers that he studied back a few years ago. Okay, And I promise you, not a whole lot has changed for most of these teenagers. The people we're going to talk about tonight are the people that we hope walk into our building. The people that we hope we have an opportunity to share with when we go to school and we go to work. So, here's some preliminary observations. Before I give you some of the numbers, just some preliminary observations that he found in this study, okay? Some of these will be so obvious, you say, I can't believe you're even talking about this. Everybody knows that. Some of them might surprise you a little bit. Observation one, many teenagers are inarticulate. You say, they're all inarticulate. And they're confused about religion, just confused. Okay, that seems kind of obvious. They're still sort of learning how to think conceptually. They're still trying to put abstract thought together in their brain and then communicate it verbally. So that makes a little bit of sense. But that's a good baseline. Inarticulate, confused about religion. Secondly, religion competes with other activities for the time of teenagers. People are busy, right? People today are just plain busy. Teenagers are busy. If they're not busy with school activities and sports and clubs and hobbies, they're busy with video games and Facebook. And I mean, they're busy. We have so much money that we have the ability to fill up every free moment of open time, right? There is no just sitting. There's always something you can be doing and filling your life with. So it competes with other activities. Third, I think this would surprise a lot of people. Parents and other adults greatly, underline the word greatly, I should have had you write that word in, greatly influence the lives of teenagers, for good or for bad. And the reason I think that's surprising is that, look, you can read in history. Every generation that gets to be about 40 or 50 or 60 looks at the next generation and says, they've gone off the reservation. (laughs) They've totally lost their mind. Jesus is going to come back soon. It can't get much worse than this. This is terrible. I can't believe it. This is They're crazy. What is the matter with these kids? And when they say that stuff, you sort of get the impression that they're like, we didn't raise them to act this way. We didn't raise them to believe this way. And you know what Christian Smith says? Yes, you did. Parents greatly, greatly influence the lives of teenagers for good or for bad. Number four, we're going to come back to this one in a little bit. Teens associate greater religious involvement with positive outcomes in life. I just want you to understand this correlation in their minds. These are young people, teenagers in 2002, 2003. These are the young families who come to our church today. Religious involvement, religious activity leads to positive outcomes in life. Listen, young families don't walk in our door and say, I'm here 
Because I associate religious involvement with positive outcomes in life. You know what they say? I want my kids to grow up in church. I want my kids to learn the values that I heard growing up. I want my kids to be around good people. I don't want them to be around bad people. I want them to be around good people. There's good people at church. <laughs> There's good people at church, they say. I want them to be around good people. So I want life to be good for my kids, and this seems like something that can help life be good for my kids, right? So in 2002, 2003, Christian Smith says, look, these teenagers, they connect religious involvement with positive outcomes in life, and I'm telling you, they still do. They don't walk into church after not being in church for 10 years and say, I'm so repentant and broken over sin and I need Jesus and I'm here to get more Jesus in my life. Say, I'm here because I want my kids to have what I had and I want them to be around some good people and learn some good things. They're connecting positive outcomes in life, good life, easy life, nice life with religious involvement. Okay, Here's some of the numbers. Again, some of this is obvious, some of it may surprise you. He says 75% of teenagers between 13 and 17 are Christian, identify as Christian. 50% would say they're Protestant, 25% would say they're Catholic. So he's lumping all of those under one heading of Christian. In our last time together, we talked about some of the differences between our worldview and a Catholic worldview. So you understand the differences there, but he's putting those together, okay? 16% of teenagers, 13 to 17, classify themselves as non-religious. Okay, so he's, he's given them a choice. What's your religious affil- affiliation? Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, atheist, non-religious. 16% say, I'm going to check that box for non-religious. Here's what's crazy. Are you ready for this? When he digs into the numbers and he looks at this 16% of kids who check non-religious the vast majority of them say, I go to church sometimes, I believe in God, and I pray regularly. But when asked, identify your faith, they say non-religious. Just interesting. 75% of religious teenagers say that they have beliefs the same or similar to their parents. And here's what's kind of funny. You can dig in the numbers again. I didn't put this on your outline. But if you look at the non-religious teens, they also have beliefs that are almost exactly like their parents. Parents greatly influence the religious lives of their kids and grandkids. 40% of teenagers attend church at least once a week. That number's weighed down from previous generations. 40% attend once a week. And that that trajectory is not, it's not nosediving, but it's not going up, okay? This is a little bit of of old data, but 40% attend at least once a week. It's kind of interesting. When I was growing up, my mom worked at the church we uh, we went to, we grew up at. And when I was growing up, you were a regular church attender if you went three out of four Sundays. Three out of four Sundays makes you regular. Today, the new number is like two out of four. If you go two out of four, now we count you as a regular church attender. And 
some, some studies and some researchers and some churches are even sliding that number even lower. And I'll tell you, we have people that come here very rarely that if you asked them, they would say, that's my church, I go there. I go there. And if you look at the boxes checked in Sunday school or how many times they came to worship or Wednesday nights or whatever, it's not very often. Once a month, most people say, I went there. But he says 40% of teenagers go at least once a week. This is where it gets really interesting. You ready? Comparing other religions. 29% say that only one religion is true. One out of three say that there is only one truth. 60% say that many religions are true. And you say, what about the other bunch of them? Well, 9% say that there's not any truth in any of them. And you do the math and you say there's still like 2% in there somewhere. And you remember the very first thing that I told you on this outline? Many teenagers are inarticulate and confused about religion. So some of them just say, I don't know. Okay? But that gets you to 100. Most say many religions are true. This next number is fascinating to me. How does that affect you practicing your faith? 51%, right at half, say it's okay for people of one faith to practice another faith. Let me explain what he means there. I had to go back and read that this week. He's saying, if you go to a Baptist church, that's what you identify as. You are a Baptist. You're a Christian, teenager. And you have a Hindu buddy that you play soccer with. And you spend the night on the weekend. And they wake up Saturday morning and they go spend the day at the Hindu temple and you go with them. It's perfectly okay for you to participate in everything that happens. No big deal. There's truth in many faiths. Those kids don't say, I'm converting to Hinduism. They just say, I'm just going to kind of go along with it. I just... You know, you're going to do the little incense and the things and the mantras. Well, I I can do all that. No big deal. They don't see any conflict with what they believe and practicing, not converting to, but practicing another faith. And can I tell you where this gets scary? That same rule applies when they walk into our building. You understand that? We've talked about worldview. Their worldview may be a million miles from what we consider a biblical evangelical worldview. But you look at them when they come in and they're singing the songs. They bow their head when we pray. You saw them put a little envelope in the offering box when they walked out. They go to Sunday school, you know. They might even sign up to go on a mission trip. And you say, well, that looks good. I mean, they're all in. They're one of us. They believe like us. Not so fast. They might not. They might have a radically different worldview, and they just don't see any problem with participating in all the things that we do. There's no rub for them in that. So that applies when you leave outside of our faith and when people come come to our faith. Here's his big conclusion, okay? Five ideas. He says, If I could describe the faith of these teenagers in the United States, I would describe it as moral, therapeutic deism. And here's how he explains it. Tenet one. A God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life. 
Not bad, right? I don't think probably any of you Wednesday night crew would say, that's crazy. We say, yes, we believe a God exists. He's the creator, he orders the world, and he's watching, he's involved in human life. He's not just some distant, uninterested deity. He's watching, he's involved. Okay, so we're okay with that. This is where it gets interesting. Number two, God wants, really this is above all else, God wants people to be good to each other as taught in the Bible and as taught in other religions. If you just ask them, what is it that God really wants from you? What you're going to get back from them is just be a good person. Just try to be a good person. And, you know, that's pretty much what Islam teaches, and that's pretty much what Buddhism teaches, and that's pretty much what my new age neighbor believes. Just try to be a nice person. Try to be a good person. That's the main thing that they think God expects of us. There's a couple problems with that. Take your Bible. Look at Exodus 20. I don't think that we would necessarily disagree that God wants us to be good to each other. We believe in the golden rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. But look what the first commandment is. After you get to the second half of the Ten Commandments that talk about adultery and murder and lying and stealing and all the things that involve each other, the Ten Commandments begin like this. Exodus 21, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's first on his list. You can't put anything else in front of me. Nothing. No one. I have to be first. That's most important. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself to carve image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or on earth beneath. It's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I want you first and foremost for me. And you don't get to worship me any old way you want to. I don't care if Aaron says, let's make a cow statue and that's going to teach us something about Yahweh. You don't get to do that. You worship me first and foremost and you do it the way I tell you to. Verse 7, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Meaning, you better use my name with respect. When you sing a song to me, You better mean it. When you pray to me, it better be heartfelt. When you make a commitment or a vow to me, you better keep it. When my name rolls off your tongue, it better not be as a curse word or as an expression of frustration. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you work, and on the seventh it's a Sabbath to the Lord, meaning one out of seven you dedicate to me. You get to do your stuff on six, But I get seven. You worship me on that day. That's how the Ten Commandments begin. And then it moves to, yes, you need to not murder, not commit adultery, not steal, not lie, not covet. But it begins with your relationship with God. Look at Deuteronomy 6, just a few pages to the right. The people who heard Exodus 20 are all dead in Deuteronomy 6. And Moses is talking to their kids. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. That's the most important thing, Israel. Love God with everything that you are and everything that you have. Love him supremely. Jesus says the same thing. Look at Matthew 22. Verse 34, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked a question to test him. Teacher, what is the greatest or the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, number one, here it is, right out of Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And... A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, you should be a good person to other folks. But the number one command, the primary command, is to love God first. Okay? So when you look at this group of people we're talking about, you've got to understand, here's one place where we really go in different directions. They say, most important thing, just be a good person. Everything else fall into place. It's all good. Just try to be a nice person. Scriptures say, God says, Jesus says, the most important thing is that you love God more than anything else. And after you've done that, then you worry about loving your neighbor. But loving God comes first. Okay, here's tenet number three, moral therapeutic deism. The goal in life, this is the therapeutic part. Previous point is the moral part. Be good, moral. Here's the therapeutic part. Central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. That's daytime talk shows, right? In a nutshell, that's secular wisdom. Goal in life is just to be happy. Just want to be happy. Just want to feel good about oneself. Anytime Christians today try to take any kind of moral, biblical stand, this is sort of the vein of argument that comes up. Well, look, we just want people to be happy. We don't want them to be miserable. Just want them to be happy. Just feel good about oneself. I guess in a sense we would agree with that, right? We would just think that there's a different route to happiness. Not by following your heart, but by following what God says will lead to true happiness. But you understand when they say the goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself, what they're really saying is just sort of do what feels right. Just follow it wherever it leads. Just be happy. You can go back to old confessions of faith. You go look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, Presbyterian document, and you look at the Second London Confession as a Baptist document. These old, really, really smart guys, they're writing these catechisms, questions and answers, to teach their kids the faith. And the first question in both of those is, what is the chief end of man? What is the, the most important thing that we ought to do in life? And both of them, word for word, say, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Not to just feel good about yourself, but to glorify God and to enjoy Him. So we'll look at a few verses about this. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 6. First Corinthians 6. 
Paul is writing this letter, by the way, 1 Corinthians, to people who sort of live like this, that the central goal in life is to just be happy and feel good about yourself. They kind of bought into that. It's not a new idea. And Paul says this in 6, 19, and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Your life is not yours. It's not yours to do with whatever you want with. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I'll let you look up Psalm 67 and Matthew 28 and 2 Corinthians 5. I'll just tell you what they all say. After you get this nailed down, realizing I'm not my own, I'm bought with a price, I'm supposed to glorify God in my body, you look at Psalm 67, Matthew 28, 2 Corinthians 5, they all say your job is to represent Jesus to the world. That's why you exist. To bring glory to God and to represent him to everyone else on the world who doesn't know him. That's your purpose. It's not just to be happy and feel good about yourself. Tenant number four. God does not need to be particularly involved in life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. I mean, to us, that might sound a little bit uh, presumptuous, (laughs) To just openly say, God does not really need to have anything to do with your life unless you're in a pickle and you need him to get you out of it. Then you better come to him. But these folks really don't have any problem saying that. What role does God play in your day-to-day life? Eh, not much. Not a whole lot. But I know that if I need something, I can go to him. He'll help me out. Take care of me, make it better. Okay? Look at Matthew 6. Jesus disagrees. Matthew 6, Jesus is talking to people who are kind of worried about their problems and wanting God to take care of them all and make them all better, their food and their clothes and the things that they needed. They're worried about all that stuff. And Jesus boils it down in Matthew 6, 33, and he says... What you need to do is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You don't need to just come to God to get your clothes and your food and your belly full and all the nice stuff you need. You need to seek God in his kingdom and his righteousness. And when you do that, you're not going to have to worry about all this other stuff. This worldview, moral therapeutic deism, says... You know, God really doesn't have to play that big a role in your life until you need something. Then you go to him and you get what you need and it's all good. Ten at five. Good people go to heaven when they die. Good people go to heaven when they die. You can read the verses yourself. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord looked down on the earth. He saw that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. He looked down and there were not any good people. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short. There's not any good people. Ephesians 2, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. In fact, the only thing you used to do in your spiritual death is follow the prince of the power there, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Hebrews 9.27 says you're going to die once and you're going to face judgment. John 14 and Acts 4, Jesus is the only way that you can be saved. Not by being a good person, it's through Jesus is the only way. 
Matthew 7, 21 to 23, Jesus says, There will be many on the last day who are shocked to find out that they were not good enough to get in. Shocked to find out that they're not good enough to be part of my kingdom. Romans 10, people need to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel to be saved, not just to be a good person. Can I tell you why I think, just one mini soapbox, why I think number five is so prevalent? It's really prevalent. Bad funeral sermons. That's why people believe number five. Bad funeral sermons. Sermons where a preacher stands up and gives a eulogy about somebody and says, this guy, this gal was the greatest, just the best. A number one, tops, they were awesome. And we're so glad that they're in the presence of Jesus. Both of those things might be true. But when you're lazy enough to preach and to teach and to speak that way, what everyone in the room heard is, well, be a good person, presence of Jesus. Those two things go together. And it happens at funerals every single day. People think good people go to heaven when they die. The Bible says otherwise. Here's the thing, okay? Moral therapeutic deism. Those five tenets. The people who believe that stuff as the core of their worldview, listen, they are happy to call themselves Christian. And if that's the core of your worldview, you're not. They're happy to walk into a church. And if that's the core of your worldview, just walking into a church doesn't make you a Christian. They're happy to go to youth camp with us or to come to a Wednesday night Bible study with us or to come on Sunday morning and sing along and do all the stuff. They're glad to participate in what we're doing. But if this is the core of your worldview, your participation in churchy activities does not make you a Christian. You and I got to understand this because these are the people we want to reach. We want these people to come to our church. We want them to meet Jesus for real, and we want them to grow as disciples. So you got to know what you're sort of up against and what you're dealing with. Let me, let me share with you some of his conclusions. I didn't put these on your outline because I just ran out of space. This is the end of the book. He's just kind of summing everything up. Th- these are his suggestions, okay? Up to this point, it's pretty hard data. These are the numbers. These are the percentages. This is what our research found. This end of the book is where he sort of gets on his own little soapbox and says, this is what I think we ought to do or what you ought to do. And I think it's kind of interesting. Here's the first thing he says. Religious communities should stop presuming that U.S. teenagers are actively alienated by religion, that they're dropping out of their congregations in large numbers, that they can't relate to adults in their congregations, and they need some radically new postmodern type of program or ministry. None of this seems to be particularly true. So if you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about a guy named James Shelby Spong, an Episcopal bishop. And he says, we need a new postmodern view of Jesus and theology. And I showed you some of the stuff he believes. I mean, it's out of this world, bonkers, crazy. And what Spong is saying, and a lot of people like him, is, is look, you cannot just preach the same old stuff to these kids and expect them to buy it. They're not going to buy it. So we've got to change what we're preaching. So they'll buy it. And Christian Smith says, no, you don't. You don't have to do that. 
You might need to tweak how you do some things, when you do some things. That might be a wise thing to do. But you don't need to radically change Christianity. And he says, look, these kids are not alienated by religion. They're happy to go and participate. Interesting thought. Here's the next quote. It appears to us that parents, pastors, ministers, religious educators, and congregational leaders, you're in there somewhere, I promise, okay? That are concerned with youth largely need, to, need simply to better engage and challenge the youth already at their disposal. What you need to do is challenge them more, not less. Church's wisdom sometimes is to say, look, we got to make it fun and relevant and the games and all the stuff, and we got to do all these things to attract them, da 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 He says, no, you don't. You don't need to water it down. You need to turn it up. You don't need to give them less Jesus. You need to give them more Jesus. Here's the next one. The best way to get most youth more involved and serious about their faith communities is to get their parents more involved in and serious about their faith communities. I know a lot of times we say things like, VBS is the greatest. We're going to get all these families through VBS. You get the kids, you get the parents. No, you get the parents, you get the kids. You can't get it flipped. It just almost never works the other direction. We have tons of kids that just get dropped off on Wednesday nights, that just get dropped off on Sunday morning. Where's the parents? But I promise you, if you get the parents, you do get the kids. And sometimes we have this idea, well, you just, the way to get them is the kids. It's easier to get them. It works that way. And Christian Smith says, no, it doesn't. Back to the very beginning, what I told you, parents have great influence over the religious lives of their kids. Get the parents and then you get the kids. Next one. Parents and faith communities should not be shy about teaching teens. We believe most are teachable, even if they don't really know or let on that they're interested. It seems to us that religious educators need to work much harder at articulation. We're astounded that for many teens we interviewed, it seemed as if one of our uh, interviewers was the first time any adult had ever asked what they believed. So he's just saying, don't teach less, teach more. Teach better, teach more clearly. I love this next one. You read this next one, it ought to kick you in the gut, okay? Another important general way religious congregations may better engage youth is through simple, ordinary, adult relationships with teenagers. You know what he's saying? You don't need a better camp. Camp's fine. Camp's great. We go, we're going to camp. It's all good. But you don't need a better camp. You don't need a better crazy event to draw in thousands and thousands of people. You know, events are fine. And if they draw thousands of people, fantastic. All for it. But what you really need if you want to reach teenagers is adults in your church to get up, to walk out of their room and into the youth department and to talk to a teenager and to be interested in them and to listen to them and to invest in them and to disciple in them. I promise you, this is not rocket science, but it works. I've seen some of our people do it in the last six months. Say, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a part of youth ministry. I'm going up there. Don't know what I'm doing. Never done it before. I'm just going to go up there and be around kids. 
And you do that for a while, and pretty soon those kids kind of start to like you. They kind of start to listen to you. They kind of start to care what you think. Just look at Chris Harrington. Just look at Corey. Just look at Crystal. Some of these people who have been in our, our youth ministry for so many years, do you know what they've done? You know the magic to it? It's not programs. It's not events. It's not dumping money into it. It's simple, ordinary, adult relationships with teenagers. Maybe that happens at a camp. But the camp's not magic. It's the relationship. If you want them to grow, you want them to change from this crazy moral therapeutic deism, get into their life. you got to get out of your circle and get into their circle, so to speak. This next one is obvious, but it's worth pointing out. Religious congregations are not losing out to neo-paganism and New Age spirituality, meaning it's not like our youth are going off into crazy things, crazy land, like... I'm leaving the Baptist church to be Wiccan, a witch. That's not, might happen every now and then. It's just not happening that much, seriously. But our research suggests that religious congregations are losing out to school and the media for time and attention to youth. This is, Jesus told a parable about this 2,000 years ago. I mean, hit it right square on the head, right? The sower goes out to sow the seed, and some of it falls where? On the path. Satan comes. Birds take it, pluck it away before it can do anything. Some of it falls on the stony ground, and it springs up real quick, but it doesn't have any depth of root, so the sun comes out, persecution comes, they fall away. And some of it, he says, falls among the thorns. And it grows a little bit of root, and it springs up pretty quick, and it looks good, but then it gets choked out by the thorns. Jesus explains what that means. By the cares of this life. Busyness. Not wicked immorality, depravity, terrible sins. Just busyness. Just so much going on. So Jesus understood this. I'm going to end with this last one. Okay? One more. Just because many teens are not actively involved in a religious congregation does not mean they would not become active under certain conditions. This is what I mean. This is what he means. I think it's 100% true. I think about some ladies that used to be in one of the churches I pastored. Okay, They had uh, an old WMU program. Did you all ever have WMU program here? Probably a long time ago. They still have it and had it when I was there, WMU program. And they met in the evening during the week. In the evening during the week. And the ladies who went to it were all 65 and older. And they had all been stay-at-home moms. Very common in that generation and where we lived. Stay-at-home moms. The dads worked. There's good jobs in that community. So dads worked. Moms stayed home. And they would have these meetings during the week, in the evening. And they had had them at that time and that place and followed the meeting agenda for eight bajillion years. That's how they did it, right? Sweet ladies, great ladies. Ladies cared more about missions than anybody in the church. Awesome ladies. But they would come and they would say, young ladies, they just don't care about missions. Young ladies in our church, they don't care about missions. It's so terrible. Got all these young ladies in our church, they don't, care. They don't like missions. They must not love Jesus very much. They didn't exactly say that, but that's kind of what they implied. You know what I'm saying. I say, well, 
Why do you say that? Well, they won't come to WMU. They will not come. Say, well, you know, a lot of them worked all day. Then they picked their kids up from daycare. Then they went home, and they're trying to do homework, and they're trying to change diapers, and they're trying to see their husband for five minutes and spend time with their family. I don't know if it's that they don't care about missions. I just think that it's probably not the right way for them to connect in with missions. No, they don't like missions. And what they're saying is, when they say that, the problem is with them. They're the problem. And Christian Smith's saying, no, they're not. No, they're not. There's nothing wrong with having WMU meeting on a weeknight for 8,000 years in a row. Great. That's fine. It's not a bad thing. I'm all for that. Keep meeting. Keep putting your dollars in the missions offering. Let's go. Fill it up. I love WMU. But when you turn around and look at those young moms in your church, and you could, you could use this same issue, thousands of examples, but you look at them and you say, they just won't come. Just won't do it. They must not love Jesus very much. That's not right. The problem is not them. The problem is our willingness to engage them in a way that works for them, a time that works for them, a program that works for them, something that works for them. And he's saying this about kids, young people. And I know that we look around our town and we say, man, these young people, they just do not come like we used to back in the good old days. I don't know who raised these kids. I don't know who raised them, but, man, they don't make them like they used to. They just don't come. What you're saying is they're the problem. We're the best and they're the problem. And Christian Smith says you can't, you're never going to get them that way. You already raised the right white flag up the post and wave it proud because you just gave up. You're not going to get them with that mentality. So, by this point, you know that he's not saying you need to, to water down the gospel, you need to change it, you need to make it easier or whatever. Uh, but he is saying it's your responsibility to find a way to reach him. You're a missionary. Whether you're a missionary in Odessa, Texas, to the people who live here, and you've got to understand what they believe and where they're at and their schedules and their lives and how to connect with them, or whether you're in India, and you've got to learn their language and their customs and their beliefs so that you can share the gospel with them. You're a missionary, and these are some of the things you've got to understand. So let's pray together, and uh, we'll put this one in the books. Father, we pray tonight for wisdom that we would understand where so many of our young people and young families are at. Give us wisdom to know what to share with them, how to share with them. Father, give us wisdom as a church to know how to connect with them and how to build relationships with them and how to invest in them and how to make disciples. We may not be able to do it the, the way we've always done it. But we still want to make disciples and we still want to preach the truth of the gospel and we pray that you would give us wisdom to do that. Father, we pray um, for our church that we would be a welcoming place for young people, college students, young families. We pray that you would send them to us, whatever their motivation may be, Father, we pray that you would send them to us and that we would be ready to love them and accept them and share the truth with them. And help them to grow in their faith.
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, speaking of mission.